0: Amen. Thanks, Ron. Uh, my name's Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors of Redeemer here, and, uh, for those of you who have been with us, we're in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Matthew, and we're all the way to chapter 12 now. Uh, we are making our way through it slowly but surely. Uh, it's just slow. It's a long book, uh, but there's a lot here. So as we've been in this series, Uh, We have been looking, at least for the past, I want to say, about seven or eight weeks now, no, not quite that many, at what it means or looks like to become a disciple of Jesus. And so this morning we're going to continue looking at that, two passages, one from Matthew 12 and then skipping over to chapter 15. Uh, One of the things that has struck me is the difference between our reaction to Matthew's narrative and our reaction to the recorded words of Jesus. Whenever we are kind of preaching through once a week on, on Wednesdays, uh, let me back up, we we meet together uh, with some guys from Lakeland in some sister churches, and we sort of have a, a network, uh, pastor of Cypress Ridge, our sister church here in town comes, and we meet over in Lakeland, and we meet for about, uh, I guess, an hour and a half every Wednesday and talk about the passage for that week, because we're all going through Matthew together and it struck me the other day as we're sitting there and we're talking about uh, this particular passage where, well, actually it wasn't this one, it was one of the previous ones, but it was one where it was Matthew's recorded words of Jesus. And the difference between the discussion, the the, the direction of the discussion and the tone of the discussion versus one the week before where we were looking at a narrative or a story that Matthew told, uh, it, it was telling to me because uh, it was... It was a lot more, it was a lot more sharp, it was a lot more intense the week we were talking about Jesus' words versus the story about Him. And, and I think that's reflective of our reaction to His words. They, they're, they're, they're hard. They're hard to hear. They're hard to listen to. They're hard to understand sometimes. They're hard to work out the implications of. Uh, and so I say that as we come to a passage where it's all His words, uh, I just want us to Take that into consideration. It's a very serious thing as we look at his words. I also want to tell you, we're skipping over chapter 13 and 14 because we're going to come back to those later in a series on on the miracles and the parables of Jesus. So it's not as though we, we, we don't think 13 and 14 are important. Uh, we're going to come back to them later. So uh, today, in your worship folder, you should have received an insert. On one side is the passage. And on the other side is an outline. So I'm going to read to you this morning both of these passages. The first paragraph is the passage from Matthew 12. And then the next two paragraphs are from Matthew 15. also be on the screen behind me. And there are Bibles in your pew if you'd like to look there. Or in the Bible you brought from home. So we've got it covered. So Matthew 12, beginning in verse 33 to 37. And then Matthew 15. Either make the tree good and its fruit good. What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Uh, for us this morning. Uh, as we continue to kind of look at Matthew, there are three things I want to highlight, and they're on the other side of the insert that you should have gotten in your worship folder. Uh, three things about this passage that that points out to us how we use our words, and what that's a reflection of. Uh, and it operates out of the context of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. Now, I, I want to Just to give you one caveat as I start here, uh, I'm very nervous about this passage. Um, Obviously, I have to use words to communicate to you. Uh, And chapter 12, Matthew 12, verse 36, will will haunt me forever until I die. Um, Because it's very frightening when I begin to think about my life, all whole 32 years of it, uh, or the way that I've used my words in the last week, or the last couple of hours, or the last five minutes. Uh, so I want to, as we start out, consider this. These are very rough numbers, but the average male speaks approximately 6,000 words a day. Uh, the average female, granted these are averages. Some of you men are saying, okay, not sure I speak 6,000. And the average female speaks 8,000. Okay, that's the average. Some speak more, some speak less. Okay. But as we as we go through this, I I I just want to underscore the fact and pray for me. Uh this is very frightening to talk about the way we use our words and the reflection that it is uh, of what's going on inside of our hearts. So I, I spent a lot of time considering this week how I use my words, uh, which has led me to look further. Uh, and deeper at the blackness of my own heart. Uh, And so it's it's been kind of scary. So there's three things. Uh, First, the danger of tradition, and how tradition can tend to focus or lead us to examine only outward or externals versus what's going on inwardly. Secondly, uh, how Jesus redefines defilement and uncleanness for us, uh, and how huge the problem is, which leads us to number three what 's the solution for that, uh, our only hope, our only way to to become clean so first, the danger of tradition. I want to give you the context and some of the background here because uh, if maybe you 're new to the Bible or unfamiliar with what 's going on here it 's important to kind of get uh, why this uh, why this little uh, tiff with the Pharisees uh, starts. Jesus and his disciples, if you look at uh, the last few verses of, of chapter 14 of Matthew, they've crossed over the Sea of Galilee and they've come to Gennesaret. Uh, and verse 1 is remarkable when you consider that uh, it's approximately 60 miles from Jerusalem up to Gennesaret. Okay, So verse 1 of chapter 15, then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So the Pharisees and the scribes felt so strongly about the need to confront Jesus that they would travel 60 miles to talk with him about why they heard his disciples weren't washing their hands. I mean, that's how important the tradition was to them. So the first thing to figure out is what the Pharisees mean by the tradition of the elders. Okay, verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Well, most scholars, most commentators, describe it as a body of oral teaching that commented on the law and interpreted the law according to the opinion of the rabbis. So in Jesus' day... The Pharisees had almost come to equate the tradition of the elders with the scriptures. They were almost equivalent in authority. And what it was, what the word literally means is a handing over. So the goal of traditions was to make a fence around the law, and if you, if you, if you obeyed these practices, then it protected you from getting close to disobeying the law. So it was meant as a, as a protection, as a barrier. If you followed them, then you wouldn't be—or so the logic went—you wouldn't never be in danger of breaking the law. And the issue they have with Jesus was concerning the washing of hands before eating. Now, this is not a matter of personal hygiene. You know, why don't your Pharise- uh, why don't your disciples wash their hands, Jesus? You know, you could get sick. You know, there's diseases. This is first the first century, after all, right? Uh, it was a matter of ceremonial defilement you got to go all the way back to Exodus, chapter 30, where the law stated that priests must wash their hands and feet before ministering. But what happened was the tradition of the elders extended this to all people and was concerned with removing defilement incurred in daily life. So they had all kinds of unclean things you might encounter in the ordinary course of life and that might be touched with your hands. So the way it went was if you made contact with the unclean thing, that made your hands unclean. And then when your unclean hands touched food, that infects the food, and then you ingest the food into your body, and at that point, your whole body is unclean. All of you is unclean. So, unclean hands touch unclean food, which enters a body and makes the whole person unclean. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees had developed a scrupulous, and when I say scrupulous, I mean scrupulous, meticulous, down to the Itty-bitty details, okay? Some of us are like this with, you know, the way we hang our clothes in our closet, right? The, The most meticulous, scrupulous way of doing things, that was the Pharisees. So they had this system. Water must be poured because only running water could remove defilement. And the issue becomes, for them, as they've heard Jesus interacting with people around the area and they've heard he's got this... Group of disciples. Why aren't they washing the proper way before eating? That's the issue. So Jesus fires back at them. He says, religion for you guys is a matter of formally keeping practices. It's not a matter of the heart. And we all can agree tradition is good and valuable, but only if it reinforces the true intent of the law. It's frightening to consider Jesus is deliberately distinguishing between God's commands and the tradition of the elders to the extent that they are opposed to one another. He's not saying, despite your tradition, you break God's commands. He's saying, because of your tradition, you break God's commands. Look at verse 3. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So you are, Jesus is saying, replacing the command of God with your tradition. So he points to an example of uh, Corbin, it's called. Uh, that is verse 4. He says, God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Now, he just quotes from the law, one of the Ten Commandments, and then a place later in Exodus. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. And it was this idea, Corbin, is... It was possible for a Jew to dedicate finances or make some sort of offering or other resources to God and their parents get older and need help either financially or need a place to stay or whatever and the person could go to the priest and say, listen, I know that my parents have made this request of me uh, but I have devoted it to God. I, I, can't, I can't help them financially. I've given all my finances to God. And the tradition of the elders became that was okay. So Jesus is saying, your tradition became so important to you that it could override one of the Ten Commandments. It could literally trump the Fifth Commandment that would prevent you from helping your parents financially in their old age. Uh, and so the fact, the fact that that could happen is is scary. It's frightening. And Jesus goes on to say... This is what Isaiah was talking about when he prophesied verses 8 and 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Now, let's bring this to today for you and I. This is what's very scary. It's possible to worship God outwardly, to speak glorious truths, to praise God with your mouth and your heart be far from him. In fact, you, you, you not even know Him. Who they are, Jesus says, who you are, matters far more than what you say. And Isaiah was saying to his people in uh, the, the, the days of the kings, and Jesus was saying to his people in his day, and he's saying to us today, that you can have good words, but be lacking in good works. Your heart can be far from God, even though outwardly everything looks great and i 'll give you an example of that, and it comes from my own life uh, growing up, I grew up in a in, in a a church. the tradition doesn 't matter, but I became a a helper in the church. I was there every Sunday I was there sometimes other times, helping with communion, doing all of the ceremonial ritual things that go along with that listening to the prayers of the priest and all this other kinds of stuff. And I had no clue, inwardly, what it was about. My externals were, I would repeat the prayers, amen. You know, or I would say the Apostles' Creed, or I'd say the Lord's Prayer, or I'd say this, or I'd say that. I'd ring the bell. I'd bring the wine and the bread and all this kind of stuff, and I'm around it, but I'm clueless as to what it really means. And as I read these words from Isaiah, I'm I'm thinking, that's me. I was honoring honoring God with my lips, but my heart wasn't anywhere near him. And that was probably 10, 12 years of my life spent doing that, worshiping him in vain, because my heart was far from him. I didn't know him. So Jesus really does highlight for us the danger of taking a tradition, uh, supplanting it, or supplanting the word of God with it, we should say, and then beginning to take that tradition and, and, and use it to define obedience, to define holiness, to define faithfulness. So he begins from that point on to redefine what it means to be unclean. So move on to the second point, which he gets to in verse 10 of chapter 15. What's the source In verse 10, he redefines it. He traces it to a completely different place than the Pharisees in the tradition of the elders. Jesus says, what truly makes you ceremonially unfit to stand before God is the corruption on your insides, the corruption of your heart. This is what the Pharisees were missing. Being unclean is not acquired by physical contact and can thus be cured by some appropriate ritual practice. Uncleanness lies at the very root of who you and I are. No amount of ceremonial washing is going to cleanse a person of their heart's corruption. That's his point. The Pharisees had come to say, if I get ceremonially unclean, I can't stand before God, I can't eat, I can't do, so I just need to wash. Jesus says, that's not going to cut it. That's not good enough. And what he is doing is he is presupposing the wickedness of the human heart. A person can't simply wash their hands and be clean, as Jeremiah said in Uh, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. We can't understand them. Who can understand them? So he begins to say, there's really two components here. There's our mouth, and then there is our heart. Our mouth reflects what's in our heart. So I kind of want to start here with the mouth and then go deeper to the heart. So first, the mouth. One of the most significant signs of our uncleanness is what comes out. How we use words and how we use our tongue can shed light on the state of our hearts. Jesus is mimicking a doctor doing a routine physical exam, right? They ask you to stick out your tongue and, ah, so that they can, what's going on inside? You ever notice that? They might could tell something funky is going on in the rest of your body just by looking at your tongue or looking back into the back of your throat. The Bible is very clear on its teaching with the power of words, Proverbs, just to give you a couple of verses out of Proverbs. These really, these just, uh, they cut me down pretty, pretty quickly. Proverbs 15, verse 4. A gentle or healing tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Proverbs 18, verse 4. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. Proverbs 18, verse 6. A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. Proverbs 25, verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Isn't that beautiful? How many words have you spoken this week that have been fitly spoken, appropriate, useful? And then uh, my, my favorite, and also the one that is just really, uh, gives me the heebie-jeebies, is eighteen Proverbs 18, verse 21, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. How many of us have said at some point during childhood or heard children in a play area say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me? How many of you have said that? That's a lie. As my seminary professor Steve Brown said, it's a lie from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. That's what he would tell us. The irony is that children say that to one another and then they spend the rest of their lives affected by the words that are spoken about them or over them or to them. The effect that the words have on their lives. And yet we, we sort of flippantly as children say that when in reality we know the power of words on, over our lives. I mean some of you today are living with the implications and the effects of words over you spoken when you were children. It's scary. It's scary. Given the Bible's teaching, the statement really should say, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can sink into my soul and destroy me. Words are powerful things. If you think about for a second how many divorces, how many wars, how many suicides, how much brokenness start because of careless words. One commentator on the Bible says this, What is done to you is of very little account compared with what is done in you. Words can destroy confidence Morale, marriages, and families in a way that sticks and stones can't. They bring wars and murders. They're like sparks. They're like bombs. In fact, words are so important that Jesus says in chapter 12, verse 36, the first passage that we read, every careless word that you and I speak, we will have to give an account for on Judgment Day. Now, what does he, what does he mean there with every careless word? It literally means work words, inactive words, idle, thoughtless. Now think about your week. If those stats I mentioned are true, then men multiply 6,000 by 7 and ladies multiply 8,000 by 7. That's your total words for the week. That's your word count for the week. Now get this. This is Jesus says, "Every careless word you and I spoke, we will give an account for on the day of judgment. Every single one. Now, if you're like me, uh, and you're prone to things like sarcasm, cynicism, criticism, judgmentalism, then uh, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really undone to think about this. If I think about my week." And until you come to see how powerful and effective, for good or for bad, your words are, you'll not cower, you'll not shrink back when you hear that statement of Jesus's. But he goes further, because something more important is under our words, and that's what he, that's what, that's what he's after. Whether our words are spoken carelessly or on purpose, Jesus says the mouth reveals what's in the heart. Chapter 12, verse 34, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out reflects what's inside. So literally, Jesus says, whatever is overflowing or boiling over or in excess in your heart, it's from that source that your mouth will speak. Look at what comes out of our hearts, according to Jesus. In chapter 15, verse 19, he says these kinds of things. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, What do these things reveal about the abundance of our hearts? Well, the question for you and I is, what's filling yours? What's your heart overflowing with? If what comes out of my mouth is sarcasm and cynicism, which if you know me, you can say, amen. Thank you, whoever said that. Then my heart is overflowing with things like, and this is true, hopelessness, unbelief, judgment, a high sense of my opinion. Because after all, I mean, you know, what you're doing, if I say what you're doing is stupid, it's obviously stupid. Because my opinion matters more than anybody else's. That's what that, that's what that's breeding, that's what that's saying is going on in my heart. Not just I like to be funny. It is unbelief. Hopelessness. They will never change. That thing will never change, that situation, that person, whatever will never change. So you and I have to come to terms with what is your heart overflowing with? What's, what's an excess, what's boiling over out of your heart? It's important to remember Jesus' understanding of the heart and ours might be a little different. And this is important to, to understand what it is he's trying to get at. For the biblical worldview, the heart is what makes us tick. It's the center of our being. It, it's our feeling, our, our thinking, our desiring, our willing. In the Bible, you can think with your heart. It's not simply the seat of emotions; it's the source of your will. Uh, in In our day and time, 2010, you know, Western culture, when we talk about our heart, oh, my heart aches, or or, or that breaks my heart, or whatever, we're usually talking about some sort of emotional thing, some sort of uh, uh, I don't know, deep, uh, deep feeling kinds of stuff. And and the Bible really doesn't really doesn't equate the heart like that. In the Western mindset, thought and memory are functions of the brain or of the mind. But here's the the, the mind-boggling thing, is in biblical Hebrew, there's not even a word for mind. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So in the biblical worldview, and this is what Jesus was trying to get at, To say to the Pharisees, you guys think if you touch food, you eat the food, then that corrupts your whole body. Jesus says, your heart's corrupt. Therefore, if your heart is black or sick or defiled, then your whole person is defiled. That's why his teaching was so radical. Because he makes the problem far bigger and far more substantial than a matter of washing defilement off your hands. If the problem really is in our hearts, then how do we get cleansed? That's the issue. That's the issue he's attacking because the Pharisees weren't. They weren't teaching that. They weren't getting after that. So you see how huge the problem is. If, if, if that's how corrupt our hearts are, and you can, you, you, your mouth will tell on you every time well, almost every time uh, then how do, we, how do we get cleansed? What's the solution? And the only answer for us is a new heart. You and I don't simply need a thorough washing or, or a bath. We need a heart transplant. Right? We need a heart transplant. And if you know anything about heart surgery, which obviously I don't, although I have witnessed one live uh, before. A couple of months ago, I got to, to go in and... Uh, Witness a, a surgery that uh, David Dodd, who, who's up here playing the uh, guitar most weeks, does uh, every day of, of his life. He just goes in, opens people's hearts up, and operates on them. You know, well, what are you going to do today? Oh, we're going to replace a mitral valve. Oh, really? Okay. And you know, I'm in the middle of that thing, <laughs> and it sh- hits me right in the middle of the cert. Sur- that's a real person on the table. It's not a cadaver. That's a real person. There's all these lines going up and down. That means they're, they're alive and then they're going to turn this machine on and it's going to breathe for the person for like 10 minutes. I mean, my mind's just spinning and they're all in there just, what you doing this weekend? Well, you know, I'm, as they're, as they're working away, working away, working away. If that's how intense and how complex that is, then what would it take for you and I to get a new heart? Not, not not, physically, but spiritually. The prophet Ezekiel uh, has a marvelous passage that foreshadows the work of Jesus and God's work in our, our lives. And I'm convinced Jesus was thinking of it as he addressed the Pharisees. It's from Ezekiel 36, verse 25 and following. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I mean doctor Dodd could go in and, and, and do a heart transplant and take your physical your old one out if it's broken and put a new one in. But by doing that he He's not making you right in the sight of God. Your, your, your heart's still corrupt. That, that new heart he's putting in there is still corrupt. It's only when God says, I'll give you a new heart. I will replace your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh uh, that you and I can stand before him. A hard heart is defiled and desperately sick. Its treasure is itself, pursuing its own agenda, beauty, and value. A heart of stone isn't sensitive to anyone else's needs. It's a, it's a stony heart. It's hard. It's insulated and it's gripped by pride and fear. C.S. Lewis says, when we lock our hearts up safe in a casket or a coffin of selfishness, it becomes unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. But a heart of flesh is one that knows its feeble status because it was given as a gift. God says, I will give you a new heart. Not do these things and you'll get a new heart. Not work hard And maybe at the end, you'll get a new heart. He says, I give it to you. I'm the one that has to replace your stony heart and give you a flesh one. A person who has experienced the love of God in Jesus Christ has a heart that's soft. It's sensitive to the needs of others. It it loves because it knows love. A supernaturally changed heart is not insulated. It's open and vulnerable. C.S. Lewis, again, to this point, he says, to love anything is to make yourself vulnerable. It means that you are opening up your heart to possibly be broken. A heart of flesh is willing to risk. And so the Gospel tells us very clearly, in order for us to get new hearts, Jesus had to make himself vulnerable. He had to be broken so that you and I could experience new life. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit empowering our New hearts, are you and I able to walk in God's statutes and obey his rules? It's what we were designed for. Ezekiel reminds us, we can't earn it, we can't work for it, we can't wash enough off to reveal it. It's a gift. So for us to get a new heart, God the Father had to break Jesus' heart. For us to get a new spirit, he had to take the spirit from Jesus so Jesus would know the wrath and separation of the Father, and pay the penalty for our sins. So, as we think about what it means to follow him, to become a disciple of Jesus, how does this reality change us? Well, receiving a new heart by faith doesn't necessarily mean we will speak less, although for somebody like me, that's definitely true. What I found is the gospel is quieting me. It might mean how we speak the six or eight thousand words a day will change how we use those thousands and thousands and thousands of words that come out of our mouth on a daily basis, how we use them will most likely change. James tells us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And if you're like me, you're going to find that if you're prone to cynicism or sarcasm, it's going to silence you. The scary part is, of course, sometimes my pause is means I'm thinking of something sarcastic to say. It's not necessarily the gospel quieting me. It's my sense of, "Mm, what could I say to draw a laugh or mock or make fun of somebody in this situation? Well, you're awfully quiet. Yeah, I'm just thinking of what to say. And oftentimes it means I don't say anything. I read an interesting illustration of this from our culture uh, this past week. Uh, In four years and in hearing over 250 court cases, the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has not said a word in the oral arguments phase of the uh, case. You know, when the two parties come and they argue before the Supreme Court and the justices kind of banter back and forth and ask them questions, and can you clarify this for me, and what does this exactly mean, and y- yada, yada, yada. In over 250 of those, over four years, he's not said a word. And the writer of the uh, opinion uh, article was saying, is he bored? Is he unsatisfied? Maybe he should run for president. So by the end, it was Clarence Thomas in 2012. And I got to thinking, you know, maybe, maybe he's just, uh, maybe he's just smart. Maybe he's just really wise. Maybe he just doesn't want to make an idiot out of himself. Maybe he's just thoughtful. Having the heart and spirit of Jesus will probably mean you'll act like Jesus. Uh, and let me describe Jesus to you. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Only with a new heart can you and I begin to use our mouths to do things like speak the truth in love, to pursue peace, to bless and pray for our enemies. Remember back in chapter 6, verse 21, what Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you weren't here for that, sermon. Go back and listen to it. The connection for us is this. If our heart is what makes us tick, then whatever our heart is set on, whatever it draws life from, that's our treasure. That's what's most valuable. You are what you treasure. A heart that's been gripped by the wonder of the gospel will be vulnerable and broken, sensitive to the needs of others and willing to risk being broken. We love the Bible says, because he first loved us. And a gospel-shaped heart is one overflowing with the glory and beauty of Christ, a humility and a security from an experience of grace, and it's one that displays character traits like, listen to this list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, courage, gentleness, self-control, compassion, humility, Poverty of spirit, thankfulness. Now get, get that, get those character traits in your head. Can you imagine a community of people that lived like that? What that would look like? That's our prayer. Let's pray this morning the Spirit would make us into a people who, because of our new hearts, display the character traits uh, that the Spirit gives to us, and that by doing that we might change our city and our world. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we stand in awe this morning that you would, through Ezekiel, say to us things like, I'm going to give you a new heart, and I'm going to put my spirit within you, and I'm going to cause you to be able to obey my rules. I'm going to cause you to be able to do the things that are pleasing to me and reflect my glory. And I, I pray for us this morning that as we contemplate what it means that our words reflect what's in our hearts, that we would spend a great deal of time thinking about the state of our hearts, what, what's coming out of our hearts, what's overflowing, what's in excess. And if it's the beauty and glory of you, then I pray you would continue to move us toward greater and greater faithfulness. And if it's not, I pray we would bow on our knees, repent and believe and ask you to replace our heart of flesh, excuse me, our heart of stone, with a heart of flesh, and may you be glorified as a result, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, what I, I hope we've learned from this passage this morning is uh, you, you can't you can't do enough uh, to earn acceptance in God's sight. You can't wash enough, uh, you can't do enough worship, you can't speak enough things about him. Uh, that's not going to make you acceptable to him. The only thing that will is a new heart, uh, and he alone can give that to you. Uh, and from there, from that new heart, begin to flow out things like love, joy, peace, uh, new new creations. That's, that's what we become. So uh, as you go, if, uh, if you're convinced of that, if your faith is in the one who can do that, in him alone, uh, and, he, and he alone is your inheritance, then receive this blessing, this benediction over you to equip you, to empower you, remind you as you go uh, to live for his glory and accomplish the mission he's given to us. So receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.